All right, anyway, we are in uh, the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Now, we've been looking at the uh, administration, uh, chapter 21, excuse me. We've been looking at the administration of Jehoshaphat and uh, studying his life over the last three uh, times that we were together in the book of 2 Chronicles. Today, we're going to touch on him just very little bit at the end of his life. We didn't get a chance to finish up the end of his life. And then, as the Lord allows, we're going to move in and we're going to look at three additional kings or leaders, rulers, I should say, that follow Jehoshaphat. A fellow by the name of Jehoram, we'll look at him in chapter 21. A guy by the name of Ahaziah, we'll look at him in chapter 22. And then the first and only of the queens that are listed uh, in the book of First and Second Chronicles, and that is a woman by the name of Athaliah. We'll spend some time with her as well. But before we look at those guys, we need to finish up the life of Jehoshaphat. So if you would actually look back a couple verses to chapter 20, Starting in verse 35, we read there, it says, Now after this, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, the king of Israel, who acted wickedly. He joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish, and they built the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eleazar, the son of Dodavahu of Merishah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and they were not able to go unto Tarshish. And so, again, we've been looking at the life of Jehoshaphat, and one of the things, clearly the scripture makes it very, very clear that he was a good man. He, he tried to, to walk in the ways of the Lord, but he had sort of his ups and his downs, usually associated with prayerlessness. He would jump into things, get himself into trouble, be confronted about that decision that he made, and he would repent. Back and forth, you see it, it happening again. So he has these ups and downs. One of the things about his life, though, even with the ups and the downs, he keeps getting higher up in the process here. And now here, at the end of his life, he's, he makes another mistake. He makes a merchant alliance, a, a business type of agreement with this northern king. And you see there that it fails. This prophet comes to him and he says to him that your ships are going to be destroyed. It, it's not going uh, to work itself out. He's a guy who made a marriage alliance with King Ahab. You're going to see later on today that that was a big mistake. He's a guy that made a military alliance uh, with Ahab. That didn't work out so well. We saw that a few chapters ago. And now he makes this merchant alliance. Look at verse 37 again. The result of this alliance is not very positive. God essentially says, you know, I'm not letting this happen. He says, Then Eleazar, the son of Dodavahu, etc., you see his name, he came to Jehoshaphat saying, Because you've joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. Now, if that's the way that Jehoshaphat's life ended, look at verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and he was buried. If that was the last story we had of this guy's life, then you would think he ends his life sort of on a down. But fortunately, and either way, I guess it doesn't really matter, but fortunately, we learn from the parallel passage in 1 Kings chapter 22 that there's more to the story that's not given to us here in uh, 2 Chronicles. So in 1 Kings chapter 22, it says, Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion-Geber. That's the same thing we knew before. But then it continues, And then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, let my servants go with your servants in the ships. The idea is, he said, look, we had a little bad luck. Let's just try again. Let's build another set of ships. He throws it out there again to Jehoshaphat. But this time Jehoshaphat says, I ain't building nothing with you. you this was not bad luck. 
That prophet came and said it was a bad idea and that God was going to destroy him and God destroy him. I'm not getting involved. He was a guy, made mistakes, was confronted with those mistakes and learned his lesson and moved forward. And that's my goal. I know that I'm going to have my downs and I know that I'll have some ups in life. I just want to make sure I'm getting higher and higher as I go. I hopefully don't make any downs, but in the process I'm sure I'm going to make some mistakes and I'm going to fall short of the glory of God. I just want to keep moving forward and going up. And Roberto, I know my three sons are named Downs. Thank you very much. I saw you, your little comment there. Well, anyway, this is, this is Jehoshaphat's life. The king comes back to him. He says to him, uh, let's do it again. Uh, and he says, no, I'm not getting involved. I've learned my lesson I'm moving forward. Well, let's continue on into chapter 21. It says again, verse 1, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Now, hopefully you have a notebook for this, because we are about to jump into a very confusing section of Second Chronicles. And it's confusing because there are a lot of names that are going to be given to us, and many of the names are very similar, and in some cases they are exactly the same. So you got a lot of people with the same name. Everybody's Bob in the story here. And it gets a little bit confusing. Who are we talking about? Not only that, but a number of the guys that we're going to look at have pseudonyms. So first off, they're known by a name that everybody is known by. And then they're known by a pseudonym, which five other people are known by as well. So I know, it gets to be a very confusing part. So we'll look at some timelines here. And I think now's a good time. Why don't we put the timeline up from King Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And so you look at this particular timeline we've been looking through. Again, the gold represents a king that the scripture says did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. The gray represents a king where it says he did that which was evil, did not set his heart unto the Lord. And, and as we've been looking, we've been spending a lot of time now in, with Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat's a king of the southern kingdom, Judah, reigning contemporary, uh, at the same time, we'll just use that word, as King Ahab there, roughly around the year 800 and 75 or so is sort of the ballpark that we're in. If we go to the next slide here, you'll see that in the north, upon the death of King Ahab, a fellow by the name of Ahaziah takes the throne. So that little teeny spot there that you see, he's only going to rule for a short little period of time. He takes the throne. We read that in 1 Kings 22. So 1 Kings 22:51 says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. Now, you notice he's in gray. Uh, unfortunately, that means, according to our legend there, that he did evil. So it teaches us in chapter 22, continuing, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother. His mother was Jezebel. And in the way of Jeroboam, that was the first king of the northern kingdom. He introduced idolatry to the nation. The son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal, and he worshipped him, and he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. So he only reigned a couple of years there. Um, but as you can see, he reigned concurrently with Jehoshaphat. The two of those men reigned at the same time as well. Now, after Ahaziah, this king of the north, short term a guy by the name of Joram becomes king. Now, Joram, in some of your versions, will be listed as Jehoram, J-E-H-O-R-A-M. And in some cases, it's Joram, 
and then three verses later, it's Jehoram. We're talking about the same guy. This is another son of Ahab and Jezebel, just as Ahaziah was. And according to 2 Kings chapter 3, he reigned for 12 years in Israel. That is the northern kingdom. You can see in chapter 3 it says, In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, he became the king. Notice the end of that verse. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we look at a timeline. I think we're on to timeline 24. You can see Joram now is added there with some overlap with King Jehoshaphat. Now, a few moments ago, as I read chapter 21, verse 1, I mentioned a different guy named Jehoram. And you say, wait a minute, I thought Jehoram was the son of Jehoshaphat, who became king of the south. So who's this Joram, king of Ahab, who became king of the north? Well, the problem is two guys with the same name ruling at the same time in different kings. I think north and south, in kingdoms. I think north and south Korea just recently had two kings, both with the name Kim. One was North Korea, one was South Korea. So it's not that crazy. Don't call me crazy. It is what it is. It's a different Jehoram. And you say, well, could it get any more confusing? Yes, it can. So just hang in there. Let's just go back and look. So now we're talking about, do we have the slide? We're talking about the bottom Jehoram. All right, everybody with me? I'm going to call the northern guy Joram, the southern guy Jehoram. It helps me. Second Chronicles 21, again. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, and they were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah. So not only is it confusing, but now you've got parents naming multiple kids with the same name here. So you have two Azariahs, Michali, uh, Shephatiah. All these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. And so Jehoshaphat's about to pass off the scene. He's got at least seven sons that are named here. And he decides to set each one of them up. He gives them lots of money. He gives them a fortified city from which they can kind of live and be comfortable and all this. But as far as who's going to be the next king, he doesn't want to fight over it. He doesn't want them to go at one another or whatever. So he simply says, look, you guys have yours, you're set. But Jehoram, my firstborn, he is going to be the king. Now, one of the things that this passage doesn't reveal to us, but we see other places in the scripture, is that the last five or six years of Jehoshaphat's life, Jehoram reigned with his dad as sort of a co-regency. They were both kings. He was kind of breaking them in to the job, if you will. In verse 4, where it, it refers to the ascendancy of Jehoram, this is now the point where Jehoshaphat the dad has died and Jehoram is going to reign on his own. So looking at verse 4, it says, When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and he was established, he killed all of his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Let that sink in a little bit. All of those brothers that his dad had set up, all of those brothers that his dad was trying to avoid this very thing from occurring, his Jehoshaphat's son, this Jehoram, feels the need to go and to kill each one of them, as well as the princes. That's probably referring to the grandchildren or the children of those people here. Continuing, it says, Now Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings 
of Israel. Now that's not good. Remember, all of the Israels, the timeline, they're all in gray. They're all, they all did that which was evil. Just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. And so, sadly, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the scripture says, abandoned the way of his dad. And he abandoned the way of his granddad. Remember, his grandfather was Asa. Asa, Jehoshaphat, you're looking at close to 40 years of godly rule, reform kings trying to bring back moral and spiritual reform to the nation. And here Jehoram comes in and he abandons all of that. It's very sad. And and we're going to enter in, the name of the sermon today is Dark Days in the Kingdom of Judah. It's very dark times in the country, uh, as you'll see even as we go further. He's a wicked king, and he abandons the way of his father, as is evidenced, as we saw in verse 4, by the killing of all of his brothers to guarantee his place as the king. I find it interesting in in verse 6, the note that is just sort of thrown in there, it said, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Now this woman, this daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, her name is Athaliah. And I don't know if you read ahead in our study, but what you'll discover is Athaliah was a real, she was something. And I don't mean that necessarily in a good way. She, as the daughter of Ahab, was herself wicked. You're going to see later. I don't want to ruin the surprise. But she kills all of her grandchildren to guarantee that she can be in charge. Some of you didn't read ahead. I can tell who didn't read ahead by the, by the exclamation here. Uh, she's a peach, as uh, some people have said. Uh, and she influences Jehoram toward evil. Now, you might be thinking that, and you might think, well, Jehoram, that's your fault. You should have picked more wisely who you were going to marry. And quite frankly, friends, there's a reason why the scripture tells us not to be unequally yoked. Because the influence is going to come whether you want it to come or not. And so we could blame Jehoram here. But remember, it wasn't Jehoram's decision to marry Athaliah. A little, a few chapters back, it was Jehoshaphat's decision to make a, a marriage alliance with Ahab and have his little boy Jehoram be pledged to marry Ahab's little girl, Athaliah. And so it wasn't really Jehoram's uh, decision. These are the kids of that marriage alliance here. And no doubt, if Jehoshaphat could have seen the end at the beginning, you know what I mean when I'm saying that? If he could have seen where this marriage alliance would have taken them in the long run, if he could have known that his own son's heart would go astray after other gods, because of the influence of this little girl that he is bringing in, if he could have known that, he wouldn't have done the marriage, I'm sure. If he would have known that his one son would kill every one of his other sons because of the influence of this little girl that he is bringing into the kingdom, there's no way that a guy like Jehoshaphat would have done it. It's a reminder to us is that even though the consequences of our sin may not be immediate, And even though we might think, well, it's not that big a deal. Look, I mean, look at the consequence. No big deal. Yet, but if we could see the end from the beginning sometimes, and we can't. And we walk how, according to the scripture? We walk by faith. And so I don't know why it it has to say that, but it says it. And so, you know what, I'm going to follow it. Even though I don't understand why, 
I'm going to walk in the truth that the word of God has given me. And unfortunately here, Jehoshaphat didn't. Jehoram gets himself into trouble. Remember Galatians 6, a verse probably that should be put to memory, where it says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. He's reaping the results of his bad decision or of his dad's bad decision. Now, as you continue on, despite Jehoram's wickedness, God is unwilling to remove him from the throne. Look at verse 6. It says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give him, David, a lamp to him and his sons forever. Now God makes this covenant with David. We saw it back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We call it the Davidic covenant. I'll read it to you here. It says, Now when your days are fulfilled, excuse me, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Remember, the first king of the united nation of Israel, when it was just one kingdom, not two kingdoms, but the first king was King Saul. From that small little tribe of Benjamin, he was a humble guy. And God said, you're the guy I want to be king. And he becomes the king of the nation. Then he's lifted up with pride. And eventually it comes to this point where the Lord says, you know what? You can't be king anymore. And he takes it from the tribe of Benjamin, the, the mantle of authority from the tribe of Benjamin and from the household of Saul. It should have been Jonathan. Takes it from there and he gives it to another family altogether. Another, another person, another tribe. Takes it from Saul. Gives it to David of the tribe of Judah. And then to David, he makes the promise, I'm not going to take this kingdom. When your kids rise up, Solomon, when he becomes the king and other people after him become the king, and when they mess up, I'm not going to take the kingdom from them like I took it from Saul. It will continue to remain in your house. How long? Forever, the scripture says here. And so Jehoram is wicked, and God, it seems, has every right to say, you know what, you have no right to be the king of Judah. You have no right to be my representative here upon the earth. Has all the right in the world to take Jehoram out. But he said he won't because of the covenant that he made to David, the promise that he had made with David. And so for now, and their key words, for now, Jehoram will remain in place, as you'll see, until someone else is ready in his family line to take over. Looking on to verse 8, one of the things we discover about Jehoram, it says, in his days, Edom revolted from the rule of King Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots, and he rose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him in his chariot commanders. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. At that time, Libna also revolted from his rule because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his father. So another thing that we discover about Jehoram is, yes, he was king, and people probably did what he told them to do, but he wasn't very popular. People weren't interested in his rule, and there were uh, pockets of people that were separating from him. The first is given to us as Edom. Now, Edom wasn't properly part of the 12 tribes of Israel, but it was a clan of people associated with Abraham. Esau, for instance, is where the Edomites come from. And they had voluntarily submitted themselves to the rule of Israel, particularly under King David. Well, now they're saying, we have no, we're not interested in you, Jehoram. 
you're a horrible king and we're not keeping ourselves unto you. So they separate. Libna was a large southern city in Judah. They pull away. They separate. One by one, these folks are pulling away. Verse 11 says, Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah. He led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, and he made Judah go astray. Now, the context of verse 11 seems to imply that Jehoram is pulling out all the stops, trying to do something to keep the people united to him. The something that he decides to do is ramp up the kind of the religious tone of the day uh, and, and the rhetoric. Unfortunately, the, the religious rhetoric that he brings is idolatry. Notice the word there. It says that he uh, led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom. Whoredom in the scripture, in the context of what we're talking about here, uh, sometimes is called adultery. And what it's referring to is spiritual idolatry. Now, many times the worship of the foreign gods involves sexual practices. And so whoredom seems to fit in that particular idea. But ultimately, the idea that we're talking about is God is sort of the marriage partner to the nation of Israel. And now the nation of Israel is going and marrying itself off to these foreign gods. They're committing spiritual adultery here. They're going astray in their worship of another. And Jehoram is encouraging it. Israel always did that, the northern kingdom. Judah didn't. And yet Jehoram comes in and is encouraging the people to worship at the high places, their foreign gods. A second reason I think mention is made here of this incident of how he's leading the people astray is I think it's a categorizing of how bad this guy was as a king. So, so far we saw that he went astray from the ways of his father and grandfather. He killed off all of his brothers. He led the people into idolatry. And multiple people in cities are beginning to revolt from his leadership. This guy stinks. He's a terrible king. One commentator wrote, Jehoram was a sinful son, a brutal brother, and a rotten ruler. And I think that describes this man well. Verse 12. Now verse 12 is interesting. And actually... Some people will bring this passage up to tell you that the Bible doesn't make any sense and you can't trust it. So let's read it here. It refers to a letter of rebuke coming from the prophet Elijah. It says, And a letter came to Jehoram from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of, your, of David, your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom. And also you have killed your brothers of your father's house, who were better than yourself. How about that? Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. And you yourself, Jehoram, will have a severe disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. Who wants a donut? Uh, that's, that's disgusting. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Um, that's disgusting uh, to think about here. I heard uh, Joe Foch was saying, if, if someone delivered to me a message that said, unless I repent, my bowels would fall out, I would run to the nearest place to repent. I don't even know what that disease is, but I don't want it happening to me. Now, here's a few things that are interesting about this letter. First off, it says that it was written by the prophet Elijah. Well, Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Jehoram is a uh, king of the southern kingdom. So that's unusual. Why would he 
be writing it in that regard. The second thing that is unusual is Elijah is not even alive anymore. He's not on the earth anymore at the time that this man is king. You know the story of Elijah. We can't say that he's dead because the scripture makes it clear that Elijah didn't die, but that the Lord took Elijah. That's the story of the chariots of fire that you read, and I, I guess that's where the song comes from there. And it says in 2 Kings 2, And as they, that's Elijah and Elisha, walking together, as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire, horses of fire, separated the two men, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And so, that's 2 Kings chapter 2. The closing verses of 2 Kings chapter 1 speak of the death of King Ahaziah. And so it says, So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. That's chapter 1. Then the event involving Elijah in chapter 2. And then chapter 3 it says, In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. So if we assume that chapter 2 is chronological, and why wouldn't it be? The rest of the book is chronological. And so if we draw the conclusion that chapter 2 is chronological, then this Jehoram, king of Judah, doesn't become king for another 10 years. And Elijah is off of the scene. And so how is it possible that a prophet that's not even on earth can write a letter of rebuke to this king? And this becomes sort of the, uh, the fodder that those that doubt the word of God would throw at it and say, see, the Bible's not reliable. Here's a mistake. And the dumb person who wrote it didn't even know that Elijah was alive. He's making up some story about him writing some letter here. Well, let me suggest to you some explanations. One simple explanation is that 2 Kings 2 is not chronological. And that happens in the scriptures. Sometimes you see that. I don't think that's the case here necessarily. It seems unlikely. Everything else in the book is chronological. But nonetheless, it's an explanation. Another explanation is that we're speaking of a different Elijah. That certainly there could have been many more than just one guy named Elijah. But that doesn't seem to be valid either because uh, of the authority that it comes forth in the letter. It just seems that it's the Elijah that we all know of. Some have suggested that it's a copyist era, uh, error, I should say. And that is that it wasn't Elijah that wrote this letter, but it was Elisha that wrote the letter. It was just a simple mistake with a couple of letters or something like that. Maybe that's possible. A third explanation is that Elijah from heaven dictated this letter to someone upon the earth and they wrote it down and brought it and said, I got a note from you from Elijah. That's possible. We don't see that really happening in scripture. So that's probably not likely either. And then I think a fourth explanation is that I, Elijah, God, I should say, gave Elijah the words to write down 20 years ago. 10 years ago, whatever it may have been, foreseeing the future. And he speaks in specifics. He talks about Ahab in there, and he would have known about him, but he begins to talk about the things that Jehoram himself had done, and he writes prophetically. John writes prophetically of how the world is going to come to its end in the book of Revelations. Prophets can see into the future as God enables them. And so hopefully by now you have a good idea, I believe, in just taking the simple interpretation of the scripture and trusting that God is able to do what it said he is able to do. And so I think that Elijah here writes a letter into the future, postmarks it, please mail 20 years from now on such and such a date, sort of like a back to the future thing with uh, that guy. What's that guy's name? Michael J. Fox. Anyhow, uh, so that's, I think that's the story. That's what I'm going with. Hopefully you'll, you'll go with me.
Anyway, it continues on. Uh, and Elijah, through the Lord, pronounces a judgment upon Jehoram for telling the loss of possessions and then specifically what's going to happen to Jehoram. Again, look at verse 14. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children and your wives and all your possessions. Now, as we move on to verse 16, it says, And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah, and they invaded it, and they carried away all the possessions that they found that belonged to the king's house, and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. That's the fulfillment of the first part of the prophecy that uh, Jehoram's family and possessions would be affected. Notice, though, very important, that one son is left untouched. And as it says in verse 17, that's this kid named Jehoahaz. We'll look at him a little further. But that's the first part of the prophecy. As we saw earlier, since God made a promise to the king, Jehoahaz, this little boy, he must remain because the family line needs to go on. We'll talk about him a little further. This guy Jehoahaz, a.k.a. Ahaziah. And we'll look at him as we get to chapter 22. Verse 18 addresses the second part of the prophecy. I'm sure you were looking forward to this. This has to do with the incurable disease that struck the bowels of King Jehoram. Some of you are excited, I can tell, uh, about it. Verse 18 and following reads, After this the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And in course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires they made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he departed, how sad, with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. He died in great agony. His bowels, it says, came out because of the disease. That's disgusting. I have a note. Oh, yuck. Yeah, that's something. Now, believe it or not, believe it or not, there has actually been a lot of research into what this disease was. I don't know why. Who cares? You know what I mean? But I figured I'd tell you. Um, some think that it was a form of dysentery, uh, which does lead to bloody stool, but not the coming out of the bowels or whatever it is that that means. So it, maybe it was a severe form of dysentery, uh, but others have uh, done even more research. Mark Fuller, who attends here, he sent me a collection of articles. He read ahead. He has medical journal articles on this topic, which I think is interesting. So I, I looked through them, and I, I found it intriguing. Um, some alternative views as to a severe form of dysentery is that this was colorectal carcinoma. How many of you thought that when you read it? A couple of you read it. Did you really, nurse? How about that? Well, the National Center for Biotechnology Information says... It seems that colorectal carcinoma was poorly differentiated. It invaded perirectal adipose tissue, blood vessels, and or lymphatic vessels, and or perineural areas. It was lymph node positive, and in the case of Jehoram, it reached the fourth stage with the spread of metatasis, I don't know if I said it right, to the distal organs. Viewed by a modern physician, the story of King Jehoram unfolds as possibly the earliest description of a patient afflicted by colorectal carcinoma. Maybe. Others have suggested it's Crohn's disease. We read about, or we know about that. We know people that have that in these days. 
Some, based on the symptoms and progression of the disease as given to us in the passage, think it is ischemic colitis. Are you writing this down? You getting this in your notes here? Ischemic colitis, I'll, it doesn't matter. That sounded very convincing. You can do the research on your own. I don't know, maybe it is the other one that a nurse, I'm just a fella, you know, the nurse thinks it was colorectal carcinoma. It seemed to me ischemic colitis sounded interesting. Anyway, you can look it up on your own and have some fun with that. I thought we'd have a little more time. Either way, this guy is a goner, and he's going to die. Look at verse 9. In the course of time, at the end of two years, no pain medication and all that sort of stuff, his bowels came out, and he died in great agony. Now, the rest of the chapter I find to be just really, really sad. Notice it says that his people made no fire in his honor like the fires they made for his fathers. It says a little bit earlier, he departed this earth with no one's regret. Nobody cared. It was sort of like, yes, the guy is dead. How sad indeed. And you could see by the lack of respect and the lack of showing him honor in his death, no, nothing special. They buried his body so they wouldn't get sick. They just kind of put it off there, but nothing special here. And he departed with no one's regret. And quite honestly, just in reading those simple words, I take inventory of my life. If I die, is anybody going to care? I hope, uh, thank you, Roberto will. I, I'm, not, I'm not asking, you know what I mean? To myself, I'm, I'm wondering. And, and I think it would be good if we kind of pose that question. If we go, would anybody even care? Would anyone be interested? And if not, well, my mom might care, you know, because she has to. That's the rule or whatever. But if, if, if nobody would, why is that? Could it have something to do with the way that I'm living my life? You see, Jehoram was a fellow that was self-consumed. He did things for himself that he needed so that he himself could get ahead. He was a self-consumed fellow that went in all sorts of directions. And people followed him because he was king, not because they loved him. And I, that's why I think nobody regretted him. And so if you're taking inventory of your life, and I, I don't want to like, send you into some great depression or something. That's not my point here. But as you leave and as you sort of take inventory and you say, you know what, what sort of an impact am I having? A few weeks back, we had uh, the, the different groups of missionaries that were going out. I think we sent four different groups out um, that particular Sunday. One of the folks came up afterwards and he said, you know what, today was really powerful for me. And, and it was sort of one of my prayers, like, oh, today's just not boring. Like, okay, another group's going, okay, another group's going. And I was like, Lord, just do something in people's hearts. And one guy came up and he said, you know, it was really powerful for me because it, it caused me to think, what am I investing my life into? And I think similarly here, that sort of a question should be posed of ourselves. Are we investing our lives into other people? Are we touching other people's lives? Are we making an impact in their lives? Otherwise, we run the risk of someday dying and no one really caring. Unfortunately for Jehoram, nobody cared that he died. Now, quickly I want to look at chapter 22, and I want to look at this fella Ahaziah. Now, Ahaziah, chapter 22, he's going to be the king of Judah. So I think we have a slide here. We're talking about down the bottom. Now, remember, there's another Ahaziah. It's not shown up here. That's up at the top here uh, in the north. This is the Ahaziah we're going to talk about down in the south. He's the fellow whose name is Jehoahaz, or Ahaziah. goes by those two names here. Reading verses 1 through 6, it says, And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah his youngest son king in his place. For the band of men that came with Arabians to the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. 
and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. Again, you see the impact of this Athaliah, this woman who was the daughter of Ahab and the marriage alliance that Jehoshaphat approved of. She's his counselor in doing wickedly. How about that? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. For after the death of his father, they were his counselors to his undoing. He even followed their counsel, and he went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria. And the Syrians wounded Joram, and he returned, that's the northern one, to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that he had received at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, because he had heard that he was wounded. Now, though the actual title of king belongs to this fellow Ahaziah, the real king of Judah at this time is Athaliah, the mom, because she's the one that's kind of pulling the strings here. And you see in the middle there, probably verse 3, it says, For his mother was his counselor and do it wickedly. Despite seeing the horrible way in which his dad died as a judgment from God, he walks in those exact same ways, allowing his mother to influence him to do evil. Look at verse 7. Remember, Ahaziah went down to see Joram, this northern king. He went to go see him. And it says in verse 7, But it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come about through his visit to Jehoram. So let's put a, another slide up here. Uh, and you can see that's the Joram that we're talking about here in this particular instance. Continuing verse 8, But it was ordained by God, 7, uh, For when he came there, he went out with Joram to meet Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. And Jehu was executing judgment on the, house of, on the house of Ahab. He met the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who attended Ahaziah, and he killed him. He searched for Ahaziah, and he was captured while hiding in Samaria. Why is a king of Judah in Samaria? And he was brought to Jehu, and he was put to death. They buried him, for they said, He's the grandson of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all of his heart. And the house of Ahaziah had no one able to rule the kingdom. And so they honor his body by burying him, not for his sake, but for his dad Jehoshaphat's sake. But he's killed. He was in the wrong place with the wrong people, but notice, at God's appointed time. And God determined he was going to use the circumstances of Ahaziah going to visit this Joram and that his life would come to an end. And you know, many times... I think we can avoid a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of difficulty if we just make good decisions about some of the people that we hang out with and some of the places that we go. Now, I'm not a separatist, necessarily, and I strategically look for ways to embed myself, if you will, into life and into the community. But I also know myself, and I know areas of weakness that I should not put myself in. And so I'm not going to build communal relationships with people in a bar. It's just not good for me. I know my background. I know where I came out of, and I just know it's not good for me. But I could do it on a sports field, or I could do it in the local Little League, or I could do it by joining this or that club in society. And so I look for ways to involve myself in the community. But so often we get ourselves into trouble just simply by the places we allow ourselves to go and the people we allow ourselves to hang out with. And in this case of Ahaziah, it cost him his life. 
Now, as we see, it says at the end of verse 9 that he had no one able to rule the kingdom. All of his kids are too young, too little. And Athaliah, his mom, she sees this as an opportunity where she's going to reign. And so look at verse 10. It says, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. Now again, we, we see people die in the scriptures and all this sort of stuff, and, and they're killed, and sometimes it's just a large number or whatever, and we don't pay much attention to it. But in this case, these are her grandkids. These are her grandkids. And she rounds them up, and she kills them. What kind of a wicked lady is this? Well, she is. And we'll, we'll talk more about her. And we'll look at her in greater detail the next time we get it together. But we are in a dark time in the kingdom of Judah. Kings are promoting and encouraging idolatry. You have kings killing their brothers. You have queens killing their grandchildren. It's a sad, dark time. But the Lord is still sovereign, even through all of these stories that we're reading here. Isaiah the prophet, not too far from this time period that we're looking at here in the scripture, he describes the following. He says this, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And, and yes, it's a dark time in the kingdom of uh, the nation of Israel here, Judah, but the glory of the Lord, that is, a descendant of David, Messiah, Jesus, he was going to come. And he would come and he would reign. And God in his sovereignty, the nation isn't going to kind of spin out of control and God loses control of it here. He's always going to preserve a remnant that makes its way to the Messiah Jesus. Every valley would be lifted. Every mountain would be made low. The rough places would become a plain and the glory of the Lord would be revealed. And so as the children of God today, you and I, we live in a dark place. We look around, we see the wickedness of things. And we know our own hearts, certainly, but we, see, we don't always act it out. We see it acted out in greater regularity and greater severity year after year after year. You know, I was just thinking today, uh, this morning actually, where the nation has come maybe in the last 40 years, and some of you that you know are a little bit older, maybe you're 50 or 60 and you were aware of things 40 years ago, you would attest to this. This nation has drastically changed in the last 40 years. And, and I'll tell you this, unless for a revival of God, in which God gets into the hearts of the population of our, our nation, the, the great majority of our nation, and changes us from the inside out, it's not going to get better. It's going to go down further and further and further and further. And I cannot possibly imagine what the United States of America will be in 40 years from now if we continue to go on the trajectory that we're going on. We live in a dark world. 
And but for the grace of God, we are a nation that is in trouble. But, I'll say this, so you can go with something positive to hang on to. As the children of God that live in a dark place, our hearts leap within us when we hear a prophecy like Isaiah. That a descendant of David is coming. And we look forward to the soon return of Christ. This is what it says in Psalm 30. It says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And maybe that letter J should be capitalized because that's the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the promise of your return. Lord, we think of when you gathered your disciples there and, and simply said to them, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. And those disciples, some of them saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know how to get there? And your word simply, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if I go, I will return. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you've opened up our eyes to see the reality and the truth that you're the way. And Lord, we, we thank you that you've embedded within our heart an expectation for your return. Lord, I think of John the Apostle. Whoever has this hope of the return of Christ within himself purifies himself, even as you are pure. Lord, there's something that occurs within us when we're expecting your return, longing for it, hoping for it. Could today be the day? Because, Lord, our hearts are in our home, which is heaven. And we desperately want to get there. We want to see you face to face. We want to stop with our own personal struggles, Lord. The sin of society which seems to weigh upon us. We just want to be that to be lifted and to be in your heavenly presence. Well, Lord, until that day comes, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us. Lord, you'd cause our eyes to be fixed firmly on heaven and not on things of this earth. Lord, when we're struggling, Lord, with the darkness seeming to encompass us, we, Lord, we know the truth. That the difficulties may tarry for the evening, but joy will come in the morning. We'll cause that truth to resonate in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name.